Well, good morning. Good job remembering the time change. The re second half of the class will show up in time for church. So that's good. One year, the uh, time change early, we thought it was the other way. So we showed up for the benediction. So went straight to lunch. That was bad. And we had an argument about it with life the day prior. And so we got him convinced. And then he shows up in time for music practice an hour early and doesn't tell us that we got it wrong. There we are. Well, welcome back to our series on the Westminster Confession of Faith. I've been assigned two chapters today, which every one of us who teaches is like, no, it's too much. Uh, between the two chapters, one's on the civil magistrates, civil authorities, and then the second one's on marriage and divorce. So small topics, no worries. Um, of the 10 paragraphs, I'm going to cover the last two uh, in detail, which is really divorce and remarriage. Uh, I thought we've been covering the other issues. To be honest, I thought it would be a more interesting discussion. Um, if you do want more on those, we'll very quickly summarize those first eight. But uh, we've we have covered these topics. About a year ago, we were going through Romans, and we covered Romans 13, which is kind of your, your main passage there on the civil authorities. Uh, we've talked about homosexuality, transgender stuff. So we've really gotten into marriage. Tim uh, preached on this a couple weeks ago on the Sermon on Sex, really talking about the marriage covenant. And so I am taking a bit of a risk and assuming a lot there that you're quite comfortable with some of the stuff on marriage because that's such a Obviously, you need to know about marriage to talk about divorce and remarriage. Uh, in Ephesians 5, a few weeks ago, we talked about there is a link there between those two subjects because you have basically God as the supreme authority and then you have different levels of authority that he has appointed uh, into creation. And so there are similarities between all those. Um, but again, you can go back. All these classes, except for last week, sorry, Dan, um, are online. <laughs> the uh, phone was broken last week, apparently. So you can go back and touch. So uh, uh, I'll, I'll just pray for the Spirit to, to fill in gaps there as far as the the foundation that we need for some of these things. Also, we'll be looking at the church's relationship to the state a little bit in our social justice series that's coming up. So let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for the love of your word that's demonstrated by a, even an hour less sleep. We pray that the uh, hearts of the people here would be satisfied as you give us your word, uh, very words of life. We pray that with some difficult topics that uh, we would remain gospel-centered and yet be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that these really would be seen as the words of God and not the words of, of a man. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter uh, 23 on civil authorities. Again, I'll just read certain bits of it. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of those who are good and for the punishment of those who do evil. That is essentially the first seven verses of Romans 13. Um, I don't think there'd be any, any real, a lot of interpretation there. It comes right from the, from the passage there. Uh, sorry, there's, it's all blocked. Um, so number one, God is supreme. And number two, we're not. So any, any authority on earth, civil authority, marriage, uh, parents, anything is derived from God. And so its legitimacy is only there in, in so far as, um, you know, they're not commanding us to break God's law. It's, it's, it's a sin to obey a civil authority if by doing so you're sinning against God. You're breaking God's law. Uh, 
And there are some sticky circumstances we could talk about. But ultimately, if you come to the point that I cannot submit to, to what might be a godly established authority because I'm going to break God's law, then you don't submit to the civil authority. It's not just allowed, you're commanded to submit to God, ultimately. Uh, Acts 4, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So for instance, we, we have to share the gospel, regardless of what our civil authorities might tell us. Uh, you could th- think of all sorts of situations, you know, do you murder an abortionist because they're murdering children in the womb? Um, you know, do you lock yourself outside of an abortion clinic and don't let them practice? I mean, there's all sorts of things where Christians will actually disagree on these things. Um, but we don't have time for that. The one, third thing I should have put on there is that a government-sanctioned killing is distinct from what an individual may do. And that kind of goes into our second paragraph. It is lawful for Christians to hold public office. They may lawfully wage war upon just and necessary occasion. If you really want to get into this, just study just war theory throughout Christian tradition. Um, you, you know, the, the, the threshold, the requirements to, for, to go to war um, should be really weighed and, and appraised uh, and not taken lightly. But the, the state does have the power of the sword internally and then most would say externally as well. The Westminster Confession supports that, although there is this pretty strong Christian pacifist tradition out there. And so the Westminster the Presbyterians would be separate from that pacifist tradition. There would be, say, say that there are times to go to war. Uh, the third one, civil authorities may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments, nor should they be interfered in any way with matters of faith to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any domination of Christians above the rest. They also should take care of all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies to be held with, without interference or disturbance. Now, this is basically our doctrine of separation of church and state. And this is completely opposite of what was originally written in the Westminster. So this is your Americanized version. I was really shocked to see. I didn't know how much had changed. Uh, this is probably the biggest change that happened in the, in the American version. The original one actually was the opposite. Like, the, the state ought to be involved in dealing with heretics and, and involved in the, in the state. And you just imagine when the Reformation started, it was a totally different government structure. And that's just a great reminder to us that we often read, we can't avoid it, we read the Bible through our own lens, through our culture that we swim in. But really challenge yourself to read a passage like Romans 13 about civil authorities in the context of living in Iran or communist China. Think about God is telling his, his church to submit to authorities who hate him and who, who want to destroy them and destroy the church. Consider that how the gospel is to go out into all these lands and all of history and, and try to, as best as you can, disassociate yourself from just your American experience in the 20th, 21st century experience. Um, so that's all we're going to say on that. All right, last paragraph in that chapter. It is the duty of people to pray for those in authority, to honor them, to pay them taxes, other revenue, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for the sake of conscience. Neither unbelief nor difference in religion make void, makes void the just and legal authority of office holders. And so there are verses there, First Timothy 2 will tell you about praying for kings and all authority, honor, obey, and pay taxes. You've got verses there to look at. Um, one thing, and you'll see this in, in a marriage as well, is 
when God establishes civil authorities, it, it's a structure that he's established. It doesn't matter if your civil authorities are Christian. It doesn't matter if your husband or your wife are Christians. That there is, there is an image, just as we as individuals, everyone on earth is an image bearer of God, with or without faith in Christ. The, the marriage images Christ and his church, regardless of the faith of the individuals. The, you're to submit to your governing authorities despite their personal faith. That's, I'm not going to say it's irrelevant, but the, the structure is actually established by God. And it's to be honored. And, and you're honoring God by honoring the institutions that he has created. Okay, on to chapter 24. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. It is not lawful for any man to have more than one wife or for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Number one, gender matters, male and female. We talked about that in our transgender study. And the Christian religion is definitely a monogamous and monogamous one husband, one wife. There are those who think that in the Old Testament it was actually okay to be polygamous, and then many who would say, no, it was sinful that they were polygamous. We won't go there, but really everyone, all evangelicals agree, certainly in the New Covenant, uh, one man, one woman. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate offspring and the, of the church with godly children, and for the prevention of sexual immorality. So marriage is not solely about companionship. Some would say it's not even primarily about companionship. Again, we need to kind of disassociate ourselves a little bit from what our culture thinks of as marriage. Our culture is very much into romantic marriage, um, even choosing your spouse, in ways that other cultures aren't. I'm not going to get into debate what's right or wrong, but just realize we do have our, we have our own cultural view of what marriage is. But there's much more to it. We can at least say there's much more to getting married than just finding your best friend and spending that. There's, there's much more to it. And so, and it's going to be applicable when we talk about divorce because uh, I, I tell my children, it's not just about falling in love with somebody. It's about really believing in the institution of marriage and really being committed. When we talk about marriage for life until death do us part, it, it doesn't really matter if you've been engaged for six months or three years. People will change. You don't know what things are going to be like in 10 or 20 years. And without a commitment to the institution, and not just the person that you know right now or how you are as a person, um, things are going to be open. It's going to be loose. So it's very important. Uh, I don't want to get into the sticky debates here on, on the children. We have enough sticky stuff to deal with. Um, but I think it's safe to say that children ought to be the norm in a marriage. Um, there would say there would some, be some that would say that you shouldn't be married if you know that you're impotent. They would go so far as you're not possible to have children, then you can't get married. I don't think the Westminster would go that far. Some would say no birth control. I'm sure some in our church believe that. Some would say that uh, you should never be voluntarily childless. So the rhythm method is not would not even be acceptable for some people because you're not trusting God. Some would say that you only limit the number of children you have for ministry and calling and, and what you can bear. And, uh, and of course, then some say you do whatever you want. You know, it's completely up to you how many children you have. So that would be an awesome discussion, maybe one day. But I, I think it's safe to say that in general, you know, the, the marriage is part of the reason for marriage is to produce godly offspring. All right, number three, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able to give their 
intelligent consent, yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, nor should Christians be unequally yoked. Again, Hebrews 13.4, we heard their sermon, marriage is to be held in honor among all. It's an institution by God, and it's ought to, it ought to be honored. Uh, many pastors, if not most, are happy to marry two Christians or marry two unbelievers because the institution is a, an honorable, legitimate institution. They just wouldn't marry, hopefully, an, a believer and an unbeliever. What qualifies as unequally yoked from 2 Corinthians 6 is, is debatable. Um, you know, some people say you should both be reformed, you know, <laughs> or you, sh- you should both have a certain level of maturity. And so there, that's a great discussion, again. At the very least, to not be unequally yoked means you're both believers. You are to marry in the Lord. And, and that should be called out when people are not marrying a believer. Now you have the danger of having ooey-gooey feelings and taking any level of confession, you know, and so go get help. <laughs> make, make sure there's some validation of someone's faith. Marriage ought not to take place between persons who are within the degrees of close relationships by blood or by marriage forbidden by the word. Such incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that such persons may live together as man and wife by any law of man or by the consent of the parties involved. And so basically, going back to our, our, what was it, chapter 1920, Scott, on the law, um, that kind of goes into that. Like Those who say, there's nothing in the Old Testament law for me because I'm in the New Testament, are going to have a challenge here. Like, where, That means you're not going to go back to the laws of incest, so it must all be lawful. And some would make that argument. And so this, this goes into the Westminster's position of we don't just discard the Mosaic law. Um, you know, We look at the moral civil ceremonial law, but essentially we would find those types of laws abiding in the church. Uh, and the original actually said you can't marry your wife's sister or things like that as well, but that Americans took that out for whatever reason. All right. I'm sorry to skip through all this, but I got something out of order here. All right, so we're going to stop there in the Westminster, and I'm going to go to the board. Um, so, again, I, I feel like we should have ten lessons on marriage and then maybe one on divorce uh, because or at least on the exceptions. I, I feel like in my study, it's very clear that, and in my own mind, if the topic divorce comes up, people kind of want to immediately run to the exception clause, right? To the exceptions. And I, I think that's a bad place to start. I, I think we want to be so cemented and grounded in the, in, in the lifelong goal of marriage. And, and that's, that's the plan. That's God's plan till death do us part. And so I'm, I'm hoping I'm not contributing to that by jumping right to divorce, but I've been a little bit sobered by that uh, in my study. And so, I, again, I'm going to pray that the Spirit um, doesn't let that be true. Um, that certainly ought to be the desire, the goal. And even when you're having issues, or even if you think you might have grounds at a certain point, to not rush there. And we'll talk about that. I've also been humbled because I, you know, I said at the start that I thought this would be more of an interesting talk. Well, how cheap is that? This is a, this is a huge topic. Um, I mean, many of you have probably been affected by your parents divorcing, and you, you're still seeing effects of that in your life. I mean, the studies show the effects of divorce on children are not good, and so it's not to be desired. Obviously, there's grace. Obviously, God can work wonders, but we need to, we need to accept that reality.
Um, some of you are divorced, and some of you are remarried. And so this is not some ethereal academic discussion for you. Um, and so I want to be sensitive. At the same time, I want the word to hit you. And if, if the Holy Spirit convicts you, hopefully it's not me, um, and it's something you pray about, and it's something you consider and you, you seek counsel about. For those who aren't yet married and considering it, I want your reaction to be the same as the disciples in Matthew 19 we're going to see. Lord, who would ever do this? If, if marriage is so, is so lifelong and I can't just give a certificate for whatever reason, why would anyone do such a thing? That, that ought to hit you. That, that ought to, you ought to be feel as going into a marriage. This is a one-way door. Um, and so we're, again, I'm just going to have to rely on the spirit here. That uh, I know my, there are positions that are going to offend you, most likely. And so they're out there. And maybe it, those positions are accurate. You're going to have to determine for yourself. I also want to challenge you not to just have a position because of your circumstance uh, and then go find someone who agrees with you. Because you'll find them. Evangelicals are all over the map on this. Um, and through church history. So you will have people who will agree with you and you will have people who disagree with you. And this it's a challenge because this isn't one that has is settled as much as other things. In fact, it's interesting, my study, many of the historical confessions didn't get into this topic, even marriage. They didn't see, again, the confession is trying to deal with the most essential things, central things in the faith that would bind a, a community together. Um, and some have determined to, to get into marriage and divorce, and some haven't. And it's a tough one. And, and the, the issues that divide us now, or you know, that we have differences on now, have always been there. They were, they were there in Jesus' day. In fact, he's dealing with two main schools of thought there, like how easy is it to divorce your wife? What did Moses mean by that? The reformers were dealing with that. We'll see that. There was a lot of diversity in the assembly about where they should go. In fact, we'll find that they, some, in some ways, went for some vague language in places because they wanted to get a coalition to sign, uh, and yet they wanted to take a stand somewhere. Uh, and, of course, you, we deal with it today. All, all sorts of things. So we want to be biblical. And then that's what I'm challenging you to be is don't erase everything you know, but come maybe with a fresh look today. Um, be willing to sit under God's word and submit yourself to whatever he teaches you through it. Um, and I'm, I don't, I'm not going to come any more authoritative than the Westminster is on it, but I do want to look at the different positions out there and why they hold them. That's kind of the, the main exercise today. And are you willing to do whatever God commands? If, if, if you're in sin, um, are you willing to repent and do whatever that means? Uh, perhaps someone here is, is, is in a bad marriage right now, and this is in the back of their mind. And I pray that this would give you pause. I, I, pray, that, um, and I pray that you would go get, get counsel. Uh, certainly, it, we're not hitting it directly, but... Involved in divorce and remarriage is the whole idea of adultery. Certainly if anyone here is in an adulterous relationship, then I pray the Holy Spirit would crush you today and that you would flee, flee from that uh, relationship. So I feel a need to pray again, so let's pray. Our Father, I do pray for clarity in this. I pray that uh, we would have hearts to submit ourselves to your word. Uh, some of, these, some of the things you've called us to are so challenging, and we don't see 
a way that we could possibly obey. Pray that you would uh, show us that that's not true. Thank you for Jesus, because there's just so much, uh, so much sin in each of our hearts, in each of our relationships, and we thank you for the blood that, that cleanses us. And yet we, we still desire to live in relationship to you for our own good, for the testimony of the gospel. And uh, we know that you will one day make all things new. And we, hallelujah for that. Uh, as we live in a messed, messed up world and with messed up minds and hearts, we thank you uh, for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, some of the references I gave there, the two that I found really helpful, I, I listen to tons of sermons and stuff too, but there's a report to the 20th General Assembly there. Um, I like that because it, it walks through the history. A lot of the history um, I learned from there, and it actually has pages of pastoral considerations as well in the whole realm of divorce remarriage. That is not a report that was officially accepted um, by the PCA, but it's there for consideration. And it wasn't meant to be accepted. It wasn't put up for a vote or anything, from my understanding. Uh, Jesus on divorce, how my mind has changed. That's a really important one because... And I can get you the link if you can't find it. Um, he is one of the co-authors of probably the modern treatise on the no-divorce position. Uh, he held it, taught it for 30 years, and changed his mind. <laughs> and so I like his because he has a really fair comparison of the different views, all the different exegetical challenges. Um, <laughs> that ought to humble us. <laughs> a guy who basically spends his life on this stuff for 30 years, a New Testament scholar, can still change his mind. <laughs> what hope is there for us, <laughs> right? But that doesn't mean, well, it's just one of those things we'll disagree on, right? This is not a topic you can just, it's not a Christian liberty topic. It's not just something, well, do I eat meat or not? It's not at that level. Um, and yet, I think the principle there of Romans 14 holds, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so, although there are these different views out here, you need to you need to be clear, very prayerful in this. What am I just doing for my convenience? How far am I trying to expand exceptions uh, for my own desires? Or how, how, how convinced am I that, that the word gives me freedom to do whatever? right? Um, and yet it's not so easy because I remember when I was starting to learn the Bible, I was like, well, I'm not sure on the alcohol position. It was easy, right? I just don't drink alcohol. That's safe. I'm not sure on whatever position. And you can kind of do that here. I, I could say, uh, God forbid, Gwen an adulterous relationship. Uh, and I just I can decide, right? I'm not going to divorce. No matter how hurtful that is, I'm not sure if I have the, the grounds. Um, but I'm just going to choose not to do it. Or I'm divorced, I'm going to choose not to remarry. Well, that. That you could do. That could call the safe or the conservative position. But what if you come to yourself and you're in a new marriage, you have children, and now you come to the conviction, my first divorce was not legitimate. I, I see now by God's word, I did not have grounds, I was selfish, whatever. Now what do you do? Some would say, you go back. Some would say, but by going back, you're divorcing someone new. And so... It's, you, there's no more safe conservative position, right? You kind of have to make a choice. What if you're preaching to a polygamous culture and you're getting converts and they have five wives? 
What do you do? You haven't divorced four of them? You know, there are some tough situations here. And so let me just stir the pot up front as we speak through these things. Um, Also, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that what the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So as we, if, if a divorced person or a immediate person is considered an adulterer, this is serious stuff. We're talking about salvation level type of issues. And so this isn't a casual topic. That's all I mean by that. All right. So I know I'm a little scattered because I've not known how to, to really do this, but basically, the, the assembly wanted to fence themselves off from two extremes. They, basically, the no divorce position, uh, I'll get this wrong. This, was ba- this is basically the Catholic view. Now, don't get too cynical. Catholics don't have divorce, but they just, they just annul marriages and say, oh, now you're not married. So don't get too cynical. Uh, and then the, just the really the passive, you know, very permissive. Divorce whatever reason. Uh, some Jews actually believe that what Moses was teaching is, you know, your wife burns your, you, your, uh, your food for dinner. You can divorce her. You know, anything you just don't like. That's kind of the extreme. Um, then there's the no divorce. It's the Catholic position. It's also still a minority um, pre- uh, Protestant position. There are some prominent guys who hold to this. David Pallinson, John Piper for the most part. Um, there are definitely Protestants who hold to this, but at, as an assembly, there was pretty much agreement that they're not going to go that far. The Eastern Church, as well, uh, has always had some kind of reason for divorce. Um, so, but we'll just call it the no divorce position. And so they wanted to fence themselves off. We don't want it so permissive. There is definitely some kind of serious threshold we need to weigh, and yet we do see that there are some times that divorce would be allowed. Now, I could do two columns, three columns, 20 columns in the middle here. There are people, and, and you probably will go all over the map as, as you think through these things. And so I just want to kind of start from a more strict position and maybe start laying out some of the ways that people say, okay, here's the strict biblical text, and then here are the ways that we think that, that what that really means and how that might expand. And then where we stop on that expansion is, is anyone's guess. So, all right. So you can look at your chart there to help. But basically, the, the no divorce position, and again, we call this, you have talked about the exception to the rule. Here's the rule, right? Here's, the, here's at least the desire, the goal, the intent of God here uh, is the no divorce position, right? That's, that's in our traditional vows, till death do us part. And so basically, they would see that divorce is, it's insoluble, right? A, a marriage is a marriage. It's something that's uh, made by God. Let's see. We'll start with Matthew 19. And we're going to be in Matthew 19 a lot today. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any consent, for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. So in that passage, we see, number one, it's a one flesh. And so the no divorce position sees, once you make a one flesh, you can't, you know, to separate it would be to tear it apart and kill it. And so they see that, that phrase, one flesh. It's like, 
mixing two liquids, right? Once they're mixed, you can't unmix them. Paul probably has a way of doing this, but in, in normal parlance, you can't mix these things, right? So, and it's something that God has joined. If God has joined something together in one flesh, man has no right and no ability to actually tear that apart. It's not possible. It's an indissoluble union. It's a covenant that cannot be broken. Um, and therefore, the idea of remarriage is kind of non-applicable. There is no new marriage unless you're talking about death. Jumping ahead a bit. Luke uh, 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries her, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why adultery? Who can commit adultery? Someone who's married, right? Or someone you commit adultery by, by sleeping with someone else's spouse. So if, if it's adultery, that means that marriage still exists. That's the logic, right? If, if the very idea of divorcing remarriage is now a, a adultery, that means in God's eyes, that original marriage still exists. And what's, what's the proper... Take, take the, the marriage out of it. What does the Bible say about being in an adulterous relationship? To leave it, to flee it, right? And so that's why you can see the logic of people who would say, if you're in a, quote, new marriage, and you, come, and you understand now that you were never supposed to divorce, you're not actually in a new marriage. You are in an adulterous relationship. And you were to flee adulterous relationships and go back to your wife, go back to your husband. So that's kind of the no divorce position. Well, let's go to... Um, it seems here that we're making a big distinction in that case you just brought up between repentance and the concept of restitution. You know, you can have repentance. The restitution is where you tear the new marriage apart and go back to the old. Right. I mean, that just seems to me, as you say, these require deep thinking. Yeah. We need to make the distinction between repentance and that concept of restitution. I agree. <laughs> but I want to get through all this. Um, often one call, uh, quoted as Malachi 2.16. Um, the older versions would say something like, For I hate divorce, says the Lord. Uh, and him who covers his, uh, his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, the newer versions, uh, notice that it's really a third person, not a first person. Um, for instance, the ESV would say the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. And so it's the man who's uh, hating her. NIV says the man who hates and divorces his wife. So there's an exegetical challenge is that God who hates is the man who's hating. I don't think it matters in the end that much. Again, I think we're this is the goal, right? This is where we want to be. And so at least often, if not always, there's hatred involved whenever divorce. I think it's safe to say all divorces involve sin of some kind. Something has happened, right? Either, even if, even if one spouse is innocent and one is guilty, it's impossible to have divorce without somebody sinning. And I don't mean, obviously we all sin every day, but a specific serious marital covenant type of a sin, because either there's adultery involved, there's someone leaving their spouse, Right, deserting them. So sin is involved in some way. First um, Corinthians seven thirty nine. If uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whoever she wishes, only in the Lord. 
And Romans 7 says the same thing. So it's very clear, there's not a lot of controversy that at death, the marriage covenant is over. This is an earthly covenant. Uh, in marriage, you'll not have to marry nor be married. And so th- this is something for our benefit and our good while we're on earth. And so no one debates that. Okay, on to the strict position. And by strict, it's the, it's the most restrictive, but it's also maybe the most tied to the actual words of the text. And then, and then we get into the interpretations and, and, and applications. Back to Matthew 19. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did God command Moses, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Now again, just like on the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus telling them the law has changed? God's heart has not God's heart has changed, but maybe there's there's covenantal differences. Or is he dealing with wrong interpretations of Moses? And Christians will debate that. Uh, but certainly, um, in the end, Moses isn't going to be our final arbiter. Now, whatever Moses said, and, and I think for the sake of time, I'm going to skip Deuteronomy 24. That's the one passage we have. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, um, where anything about divorce and exception is given um, in, in the Old Covenant. And so that's clearly the passage they're talking about. But whatever your position is, as you go to Deuteronomy 24, you're probably going to interpret that a little way because it's going to bolster your position or whatnot. But in the end, it's not going to be final, I think, for what we determine because and it's got a lot of the same application and exegetical challenges that we have in the New Testament passages where people can go all over the place. But again, ultimately, we're going to see Jesus says, you've heard it said this, Moses said this, but but we're dealing with what I'm talking about now and obviously what Paul's going to talk about. So I don't think in the end it'll be final. If anyone has questions on that, Deuteronomy 24, I've got a lot of things I could say on it, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip it. Um, Let's see. Back to Matthew 19. I feel like I didn't read something. I didn't read all of Matthew 19. Let me turn it. Someone have that open? I feel like I didn't read 7 to 9 all the way. I'll be there in a second. All right. I just missed verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. So here Jesus is saying, whoever, the, the, again, the rule is don't divorce your wife. Don't marry another. But he does give this exception clause, except for sexual morality. And so the strict position would have the case of basically um, adultery. The, quote, exception clause. When can I divorce? When there's adultery. Now, that's clear there. It's in Matthew 5 uh, as well as Matthew 19. Uh, It somewhat parallels some things that Moses may have said in Deuteronomy 24. So Jesus clearly gives an exception. We call it the exception clause. Now, why does the no divorce position not clearly read Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and say, oh yeah, there is a reason, divorce? Well, number one, the word there for uh, sexual morality is pernea. We get the word pornography from it. And pernea is much bigger than a divorce. It's sexual morality. It's, it's, It's a basket of things. You could... Read there uh, in Leviticus, it goes right through things like, you know, bestiality, 
incest, um, all sorts of sexual category sins, and it would include divorce. And so this position say, wait a minute. If he wanted to say adultery, he would have used the word for adultery, but he didn't. He used a much broader word. And so their interpretation of this would be, well, what could this mean then? Well, it could either mean we're talking about things like I just read in paragraph four there, incest. You know, there, there are certain uh, relationships that are never valid for marriage. So that's what he's talking about. So if you find out, somehow you didn't know, you're married to your sister, uh, then you can divorce because that's an illegitimate marriage. Yo, I, I'm just saying. It's called, it's called degrees of consanguinity. Oh, these words. No, no, they're serious. Because pornea includes that. People who are strict, no divorce people, jump on that and ride that horse. Sure. And uh, whether that's legitimate, that's, that's hermeneutical gymnastics to arrive at that. He shows Westminster's over here, just to be clear. But. The other, the other way they would interpret that is, you know, in that culture, there was a betrothal, right? There's a stronger than engagement. It was committed. To break a betrothal was basically a divorce. And so they would say, well, in the, before you were actually married in that betrothal period, if there's sexual morality, if there's fornication, then you have every right to divorce uh, your, your spouse, not a spouse. Yet. So that would be the two main categories that they would read that. Go ahead. I don't want to spread your thunder because you may be going there. If you're going there, I'll shut up. That's right. But the question is, does adultery dissolve the bonds of marriage? Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 7 Six. that if you go into a prostitute, Six. Yeah. you become one flesh with her. Right. Who are you one flesh with? Are you, are you one flesh with both your wife and that woman? And so the argument... And he says, flee immorality. Right. The argument then is, if I have become one flesh with another person, uh, have I dissolved, you know, can you be one flesh with beast or whatever? And so that's the question, that's the nub on the exception clause, is what dissolves marriage? Almost everyone agrees death does. But does adultery. And if it does, then that person, as the confession says, is to be regarded as no longer married. But that to me is the, the nub of the issue. That also gets to the pastoral consideration of say you hold this position, adultery would give you grounds to divorce. Does your spouse committing adultery automatically, de facto, dissolve the union? Or do you have the option to stay in that? And yes, so you, you can, you're right, it does not automatically dissolve the union. Otherwise, there's no, some of the passages on calling for restitution, calling for reconciliation make no sense. In fact, in the Deuteronomy passage, if your device, you, if you give your wife a divorce, goes and marries another, you cannot bring her back. That's the actual command there. And so, yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, okay. Boy, we're not going to get through this. Let's see. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, and so here we have, many would say that verse 10 to 11 are talking about a believer's, and then he's going to talk about to an unbeliever. That's not clear to me, but... 
Um, so here that this is where they would say, okay, so even if you do divorce, then um, then you shouldn't remarry. So even if there is divorce for whatever reason or there's separation, okay, but let's do what you can here and don't remarry. And some in this position would still say, well, there is a ground for divorce, but even in that ground for divorce, you don't have the grounds to remarry. And they would turn to a passage like this. Where others would argue, no, if there's ever a legitimate grounds for divorce, there is de facto a legitimate grounds for remarriage because that marriage covenant no longer exists. Otherwise, the divorce would not be legitimate. Um, to the rest I say, not I, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And so the other, not all, some would stop at adultery. Some would then add, um, basically, desertion. Now, desertion isn't so much a grounds for divorce, because it's not like you're going to go divorce. It's the fact is they have left you. It's more of a circumstance you find yourself in. So here would be you taking, on the grounds of divorce, I can now go divorce my spouse. Here would be they've left. I didn't seek the divorce, they've left. And so by de facto, they've divorced me. And so, and then some would say, well, that was only in the case if it's an unbeliever. That never applies to a believer. Others would say, no, it it involves any time that that there's desertion and you were left, uh, let it be so. You're not uh, under bondage. Now, the under bondage, I'm jumping around a lot, I know. Under bondage, some would take means, similar language is used when it talks about being bound to your husband, bound to your wife. So being not under bondage would mean you're free from marriage. You have been free from the covenant of marriage, and therefore... You can go remarry. Others would say, this position would say, and even some in this camp would say, to not be bound would be more something like, you're not under, you have not sinned. You are innocent in this desertion, in this separation, and so you're not bound in that sense. Or, um, you're not bound to fulfill all of your marital vows, right? Because if you're physically separated, you're not really in a marriage, right? You're not supporting one another, loving one another, caring for one another on a, on a daily basis. And so they would say, all that means to not be bound is you're not, you're not in sin by being physically separated because they've, they have left you. Um, and then we start getting into, let's see, I don't want to cover this. I'm in San Diego next Sunday. I can't finish next week. Um, we are going to have to come back to this. Um, Let's see. Uh, in that passage we just read, we can see that the goal is still reconciliation. So here's a general principle here that even if there are grounds, um, even if this releases you from the bond of marriage, if you agree with it at that point, we still have a very much a pastoral concern. Is, is this still the goal? Is this still the goal to save that original marriage? Um, and then you say, so how... Is it a one-night stand? Is this an ongoing, you know, I'm not leaving this woman kind of a thing? Where's the line here? Christians are going to disagree. What about desertion? He went out on a drinking binge for 12 hours. 
he's deserted me. I have grounds, right? <laughs> or he's gone for six months. Was he coming back? Is he remarried? Is it a year? I mean, how long do you go? And that's where, and, and we'll, when we finally close this up, we'll, we'll go back. The, the safety of counsel, right? To, to bring others in your mix who can be more objective, who can guide you biblically, who can pray with you, um, the need to not make such a decision on your own. In fact, the confession is going to say, don't do it. This is not for you individually to take on yourself and make these kind of decisions. <laughs> this is when your, your church gets involved. They'll even say the civil authority gets involved. Th- these are tough circumstances. And so w- once you start applying these things, and the more and more you go to the right here, as we'll talk about, um, it's we could all come up with circumstances that are just a mess. They're broken eggs, and you don't know how to fix it, right? And, and you're going to have differences of opinion on exactly what you, what you do about it. I hope, if nothing else, as we're starting to get into the sticky stuff here, that if you can stay over here in your own personal life and work to save a marriage um, by God's grace and to put up with things that these guys feel, you know, just... I'm not in love with her anymore, right? Whatever, it just didn't work out. We're not a fit. I fall in love with someone else. That, you know, do not let those seeds start to take root. That you start opening up a a flood of challenges and confusion um, when you get into divorce remarriage. And it's a challenge. And yet, as a body of sinners who are saved by grace, we're not going to be some some cult that just keeps everybody out unless you look pristine and we don't want to deal with the dirty people and the messy situations. No, we're going to welcome everyone in and by prayer, we're going to try to deal with it. and We're going to try to make some big decisions. Um, I'm so thankful I can just come in and drop a divorce remarriage bomb and leave. I don't sit on the session and have to make some really, really tough decisions. Right? When someone comes to you and wants to and has a situation, hands it to you, say, what shall I do? I mean, and yet, that's just cavalier, because we're all going to be in this situation. You can't, this isn't just about you and your marriage, or I'm single, what do I care? Right? You, we are in a body, we're to bear one another's burdens, you're going to have your children be in situations that are going to challenge you. You might find yourself in a situation you could never dream of. So, we all have to be as equipped as we can and open to these messy situations, right? Some, a brother or sister is going to come on you and say, I need your help. <laughs> and you're going to have to jump in the mire with them and do your best uh, with God's word in your hand. So we'll figure out the aftermath of when we're going to get back to this and, and, uh, and clean it up. But um, I, dare ask, I, dare, I dare ask if there are any questions. <laughs> um, one thing, I, if we don't bring them up today, I'll, <clears throat> I'll leave it for you now, is I'm going to go through a lot of pastoral considerations when we finish the lesson. I want you to throw in some other things. Maybe there's going to be some circumstances you're going to want to ask. Um, sorry, this is not done very well. It's a tough one. <clears throat> Any comments? Wow. I like what you said at the beginning and all the prayerful things and uh, encouraging everyone to seek counsel and not um, try to look for things that just fit your view already. Yeah. And that, that's a general principle, isn't it? I mean, that, that's true for so many things in life.
Yeah. Think about, you know, King Henry, of course. King Henry did exactly that. He went shopping yeah. for the right, you know, right. to find the theology that fits <clears throat> sinful nature. Um, yeah. There's a long history of that. And the importance of church membership and, and willing to be under authority is important because, I mean, let's face it, if you have a position, you'll find a church that supports you. And, and that's not necessarily the right way to go. And that, that's on so many things in life. All right, well, ask for your forgiveness that I didn't get through this. <laughs> it's so jumbled, but we will get there. It's too important not to, to finally get to, though. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, Dan, would you close us a prayer? Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who has made us, uh, who are wretched, into a beautiful bride. We need that work. That last day will come, and you shall come, and you shall take your bride for yourself. Father, we pray in our interactions with others, husbands, wives, and friends, whatever our relationships are, with being married and friends, parents that are married, be mindful of the big picture, uh, the call for that glorious union between God and His church. Father, we seek to reflect that in the ways that we live. And even in the mess and the mire when we fail in that regard, that we would point towards that great reality that you've called us to. And we look forward, even as we participate in some small way, in that uh, heavenly reality as we go forward for worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.